How many times a day do you find yourself hoping for a do-over, a fresh start? Imagine if your future, your security, your family, your livelihood depended on it. The opportunity to not just do good work, but to get back to work. Dave's Killer Bread believes your past shouldn't be what holds you back. Dave's Killer Bread believes in second chance employment. It's the purpose behind every loaf they make. Learn more at daveskillerbread.com slash second chances. Jeffrey Epstein died before many of his victims could face him in court. Tonight, 60 Minutes will show you images from his jail cell and autopsy, some of them graphic, taken by the medical examiner. His death has been ruled a suicide, but this forensic pathologist is not so sure. Do you think there was foul play here? We were surprised to find out how hard it was for public health officials to get on U.S. livestock farms, even after an infectious outbreak. So we decided to ask to go ourselves. What if we agreed to go through all the guidelines you just described? Would you take us onto a farm? You know, I, I'm not a farmer. I would have to talk to farmers. Um, mm-hmm. Our communications people would have to determine, you know, if they can find somebody willing. Few people can say they have ever played at the Super Bowl. Next month, Shakira adds her name to that list. We went to Spain to watch the five foot three inch ball of energy work, mix a new song, and keep the father of her two children, Barca star Gerard Piquet, on his toes. You said, I'm going to win the World Cup just to see you at the finals. Didn't you? I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes. Convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein has been accused of sexually assaulting countless teenage girls. Last July, the wealthy financier was arrested and many of his victims were looking forward to finally facing him in court. But weeks after his arrest, Epstein was found dead in his jail cell. A medical examiner concluded that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. Since then, conspiracy theories have flourished. Epstein was connected to a long list of rich and powerful people. Some suspect he was killed because of what he knew or what he threatened to tell. How did one of the most high-profile inmates in the country end up dead in a federal jail? After a five-month investigation... 60 Minutes has obtained photos, some of them graphic autopsy photos, and evidence from inside Jeffrey Epstein's cell. This is the cell where Jeffrey Epstein was found on Saturday morning, August 10th, 2019. There are dozens of photos taken by the medical examiner's office that day. On the floor, a mattress and piles of sheets. Several nooses that appear to be fashioned from the orange bed linens are laid out. His medicines photographed, but no body. Is there a photograph of when he was found dead in the no, cell? No, there's no photograph taken of Mr. Epstein in the cell. Dr. Michael Bodden observed the four-hour autopsy for Jeffrey Epstein's brother, Mark. Bodden, a renowned forensic pathologist who's taken controversial positions over his decades-long career, 
is investigating Epstein's death for his client. Do you think there was foul play here? The forensic evidence released so far, including autopsy, point much more to murder and strangulation than the suicide and suicidal hanging. I hesitate to make a final opinion until all the evidence is in. People will say, well, you're being paid by Mark Epstein, so of course you're going to say that something suspicious is going on. That's a reasonable thing for some people to think. But our job is to find what the truth is, just to find out whether it's a homicide or a suicide. Uh, we're uh, still haven't gotten all the information. Guards found Epstein at approximately 6.33 a.m. And sources say one of them could be overheard saying, breathe, Epstein, breathe. I thought at the time... Dr. Bodden believes, based on the autopsy, that Epstein died around 4.30 that morning two hours earlier. The guards say they came in at 6.30. They found him. They call emergency services. They tried to do CPR with him, but he's dead. But rather than leave the body there, they take the body to an emergency room. Yeah. Is that normal protocol? No, that's, that's not normal protocol. The EMS people normally, and especially in jail, should not move a dead body. He's right. Bureau of Prison Protocol mandates a suicide scene should be treated with the same level of protection as any crime scene in which a death has occurred. 60 Minutes reviewed hundreds of graphic photographs from the autopsy of Jeffrey Epstein and inside his cell. There are two nooses, a bit of orange sheet tied to the grate of a window. On the top bunk, bottles and medicine stand upright. Below it, another piece of fabric is tied through a hole on the bed about four feet from the ground. Did Epstein, who was nearly six feet tall and 185 pounds, somehow lean in and hang himself from the lower bunk? We don't know. These are the known facts. On July 6th, Jeffrey Epstein was booked into the Metropolitan Correctional Center, or MCC, in downtown Manhattan, a federal high-security holding facility for inmates awaiting trial. Suicides at the MCC are rare. The last one was 14 years ago. The jail has temporarily housed everyone from Mexican drug lord El Chapo to mafia boss John Gotti and fraudster Bernie Madoff. MCC is the worst jail or prison I've ever been to by far. It's not a club fed. It's not a club anything. It is dirty. It's insect infested, rodent infested. It was built for about 350 and houses over 700. So the inmates are packed in. Bruce Barquette is the lawyer for Epstein's first cellmate, 52-year-old Nick Tartaglione, a brawny former police officer accused of murdering four men. They shared a cell in the SHU, the special housing unit, which is considered safer than general population. Jail's a tough place. The rules don't exist the way they do in society. Somebody like Jeffrey Epstein, uh, you know, an elderly, rich, white male is going to have a tough time in general population. Epstein was directing money to be deposited in other inmates' commissary accounts in exchange for his protection, sources say, because he feared for his life. But the government says Epstein was suicidal and made his first failed suicide attempt weeks after he arrived. According to court documents, on July 23rd, a guard found Epstein on the floor of his cell with a strip of bedsheet around his neck. Epstein claimed his cellmate, Nick Tartaglione, 
attacked him. Epstein says that Nick tried to kill him. Nick says absolutely nothing like that happened. Well, it's not just Nick says absolutely nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened. No one says that uh, Nick tried to kill Epstein. Epstein was moved to the psych unit and placed on suicide watch. But one week later, Epstein, at the direction of the MCC's psychological staff, was taken off suicide watch and required to have an assigned cellmate. This was a monumental failure on all levels, and that's why it has fueled the conspiracies, and I understand that. Cameron Lindsay is a former federal prison warden. Who should have made sure that he wasn't taken off suicide watch, in your opinion? The leadership of the facility should have stepped in and said, well, I appreciate the perspective of you, chief psychologist. I'm going to override that decision, and we're going to leave Epstein on suicide watch, especially subsequent to the suicide attempt that he had. Epstein was moved back to the shoe and assigned a new cellmate. We reviewed photos and interviewed jail employees to create this composite of the area. Each tier of the shoe has eight cells, usually with two inmates per cell. Epstein's cell, 220, was about 15 feet away and up a set of stairs from the guard station with a single locked gate between them. The gate is the only way in or out of the tier. Lawyers say the day before Epstein was found dead, he was upbeat and looking forward to an appeal hearing on his bail. That same day, his cellmate was released and no new cellmate was assigned, even though he was required to have one. Michael Thomas and Tova Noel are the two guards who were working the overnight shift on the shoe. Court documents say Epstein was escorted into his cell by Tova Noel at approximately 7.49 p.m. Then the guards didn't check in on him again until shortly after 6.30 a.m. the next morning. So in the shoe, they should be checked in on every 30 minutes? They should be checked on every 30 minutes. It's my understanding, based on the documents that I examined, the two officers that were working in the special housing unit allegedly falsified the records and did not do any rounds for approximately eight hours. How big of a deal is that? That's a huge, huge deal. This is one of the most basic operational aspects of managing a jail or prison. Instead, federal prosecutors say surveillance video makes clear the guards searched the Internet and appeared to have been asleep. Both guards were working overtime. When you're being forced to stay over shifts, not go home and see your family, Mm. you start to see um, people take shortcuts. Tyrone Covington is the president of the union that represents the guards, who both now face criminal charges and have pleaded not guilty. I absolutely believe that these staff members are being made a scapegoat. Because it was Jeffrey Epstein? Because it was Jeffrey Epstein. Covington doesn't think there was any foul play, and he says there should be surveillance video to prove it. In November, Attorney General William Barr told reporters he personally reviewed surveillance video that showed nobody entered the area where Epstein was held. But sources say a second camera inside the tier, the one that could have seen Epstein's cell door and the doors of other inmates, was not working that night. The theories that are out there, one of them is that it was another inmate who may have killed Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Come on. You don't believe that? (laughs) He was found hanging in his cell. Um, He had tried to commit suicide before that. He was a very wealthy man who was looking at a lifetime in prison. You know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. 
So Epstein's taken off suicide watch. The day before he kills himself, his roommate is uh, removed from the cell. The cameras on his tier are not working. The guards fell asleep. It seems almost impossible to think all of those things could happen in that way. It does. And that's what makes this so shocking. I mean, this is a failure on multiple levels. Do you think there's any way that Jeffrey Epstein could have been murdered? Absolutely, unequivocally not. There was a note in Jeffrey Epstein's cell. He wrote that one guard kept me in a locked shower stall for one hour. Noel, the guard, sent me burnt food, giant bugs crawling over my hands. No fun. Dr. Michael Bodden says if anyone thought Jeffrey Epstein was suicidal, they wouldn't have let him have a ballpoint pen that could be used to harm himself or someone else. The other thing we just noticed looking at the photos, it appears he had some kind of sleep apnea machine. You can see a long electrical cord. Yes, there were other wires and cords present that it would have been easy to uh, use to hang oneself within a few minutes. But the key reason Dr. Bodden thinks Jeffrey Epstein's death might be a homicide is because of the unusual fractures he saw in Epstein's neck. There were fractures of the left, the right thyroid cartilage, and the left hyoid bone. This is an autopsy photo of Epstein's broken hyoid bone, a U-shaped bone that sits under the jaw that part of the tongue attaches to. The thyroid cartilage sits at the front of the neck. I have never seen three fractures like this in a suicidal hanging. Sometimes there's a fracture of the higher bone or a fracture of the thyroid cartilage. But not three. Very unusual to have two mm -hmm. and not three. And going over over a thousand jail hangings, suicides, in the New York City state prisons over the past 40, 50 years, no one had three fractures. The New York City Medical Examiner's Office disputes Bodden's theory, saying that fractures of the hyoid bone and cartilage can be seen in suicides and homicides, and they stand firmly behind their finding of suicide by hanging. Then there's the two nooses. This was the one that was sketched and included in the autopsy by the medical examiner, presumably because they thought it was used in Epstein's death. But Dr. Bodden says that noose and the wounds on Jeffrey Epstein's neck don't appear to match. What do you see when you see these two things together? What I see here is that this noose doesn't match the ligature furrow mark. It's uh, wider than this. To the naked eye, it looks like there's some blood here, and it doesn't look like there's any blood on this noose. That's right. This looks like a clean noose that was never used to compress anybody's neck. There's also something that's striking about the photos. The wound is down here. You'd think if somebody hung themselves, the wound would yeah. be maybe up here. Yes. Most hangings, especially free hangings, the ligature slides up to beneath the, the uh, jawbone, the mandible. Here it's in the middle of the neck. Dr. Bodden says a wound straight across the neck is more common when a victim is strangled by a wire or cord. He and Epstein's brother Mark met with the government and asked to see any forensic testing and any video. But they say they were told the ongoing criminal case against the two guards prevents the Justice Department from releasing any information. So the criminal charges are now basically a firewall for the family to get any information about From the Justice happened. Department. The charges have also silenced the guards. 
The attorney for guard Michael Thomas says five months after Epstein's death, Thomas has still not spoken to investigators or revealed how he alone found Epstein's body. Disappointed that they never got to face Epstein in court, many victims are now angry that the investigation into his death has left so many questions still unanswered. Most of us know by now we shouldn't overuse antibiotics so we don't end up with bacterial infections that the drugs can't treat. But it's interesting to know that more than 12 million pounds of medically important antibiotics sold in this country are not for use in humans, they're for livestock. And the antibiotics are driving the spread of drug-resistant bacteria in the animals that can get passed onto us through food if we don't cook and handle it properly. Yet it's almost impossible to get on the farms to conduct inspections and stop infection outbreaks from spreading, even for public health officials. My job is to look for outbreaks. When I see them, I describe them, and I'm supposed to stop them. Very simple. In 2015, Washington State epidemiologist Scott Lindquist investigated an outbreak of antibiotic-resistant salmonella tied to roaster pigs. Our estimate is anywhere between three to 4,000 people were probably ill with this entire outbreak. But we had 175 folks that had positive cultures. And, and meaning that they were severely ill. Yeah. Severely ill with dozens hospitalized because the salmonella was resistant to antibiotics. Lindquist traced the cause of the outbreak to a slaughterhouse called Kapausen Meats. We come in and we find the bacteria essentially everywhere. Drains, utensils, um, the truck that transports them from the farms. Was it the slaughterhouse's fault? I have no idea. And I don't say that lightly. I've only gone back as far as the slaughterhouse. So I want to go back to the farms and I want to sample the pigs at the farm to say, do they have this bug, this exact DNA fingerprint? Um, before they came to the slaughterhouse. The farms he wanted to visit were in Montana, where the slaughterhouse told him the pigs came from. But to his surprise, Lindquist, who was conducting the investigation, was flatly turned down. Did you express your anger? And there were a couple heated phone calls. Uh, I was pretty well known for exerting my strong opinion about getting out to the farms. Um, but in the end, I was thwarted thwarted, he says, by the National Pork Producers Council, the lead lobbying group for the $23 billion pork industry. They sent Lindquist a letter denying him access to the farms, saying, I know that you do not want any inadvertent negative consequences to farms as a result of this proposed on-farm sampling. It was signed by Chief Veterinarian Liz Wagstrom. The farmers that had been asked to um, provide samples, declined to have samples taken on their farms, and we supported that decision. Why wouldn't the farmers want to find out where this started, where the salmonella issue outbreak started? Why wouldn't you want to find out where it started? By the time they wanted to go to the farm, it was five months after the first case. This point in the outbreak, um, if it were found on the farms, there was no way to tell if it started at the farm 
or if it started at the plant and the truck had brought it back to the farm. But Scott Lindquist said it wasn't too late for his investigation to get information that might slow the outbreak, which was continuing. I think they didn't want me to make the farms look bad and actually even offered to code the farms, call them farm A, B, C, and D, so it wouldn't be something that would, in my records, would even name the farm, but it would give me the information, did their pigs have this bacteria? And I got absolutely none of that. He had gone out of his way to assure you and the farmers that he wouldn't even name them. What the farmers were concerned about was the discussion that um, in his plan, they wanted to go to the other plants that the those farmers sent pigs to. Exactly. And those farms could be easily identified just by their state of origin. When we asked Liz Wagstrom to help us visit a hog farm, she raised a surprising concern. Biosecurity. Biosecurity. If I were to go to a pig farm as a veterinarian, I'll take a shower. I'll shower in and use um, shampoo so I don't carry any diseases into the barn. What if we agreed to sanitize ourselves to the ultimate degree, go, go through all the guidelines you just described, could we get, would you take us onto a farm? You know, I, I'm not a farmer. I would have to talk to farmers. Um, mm-hmm. Our communications people would have to determine, you know, if they can find somebody willing. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll go th- with any guidelines, any shampooing, yeah. anything you want us to do. I can see if they can make that happen. Um, and I'm sorry, that's the best I can do. It didn't happen. We never got permission to go on a farm. But the council did give us this footage. It wasn't just us. Even federal inspectors have trouble getting on farms. They are not allowed on a farm to look for bacteria that make people sick without the farmer's permission. We have this black box of what's happening on the farm, right? So we... We don't have a way of tracing tainted products all the way back to the farm. We just don't, we don't track that. We don't keep the records. Dr. Lance Price is a microbiologist at George Washington University and a leading expert in drug-resistant bacteria. And so that's like a big pile of salmonella cells? Yeah, pretty much. Here in his lab, Price and his team test grocery store meat for antibiotic-resistant bacteria as part of an ongoing study. So these, these bacteria, we consume them with the meat. Those bacteria then get into our system and they cause infections. Then the infections, because they're already resistant to antibiotics, the doctors don't have any antibiotics to treat those infections. But can you cook these pathogens out of pork? You can. The problem is that when you bring that package into your house, you're bringing a package, a raw package of meat. When you open that up, you've now just potentially released bacteria, pathogens, potentially drug-resistant pathogens in your kitchen. I mean, you don't hear that much about people getting salmonella or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, so the, you know, each year there are outbreaks of, of drug-resistant infections. The Pork Council says the United States pork production system yields the safest, highest quality pork available, and U.S. pork producers adhere to rigorous government regulations. Farmers started using antibiotics decades ago, not only to fight disease, but to make animals grow faster with less food. Their use increased as farms got larger. Today, most hogs are raised on big industrial farms 
that are owned by multi-billion dollar companies, some of them foreign. You've got these big, in some cases, multinational companies that are messing with our food safety system, but they hide behind this image of an American farmer. Why can't we regulate the use of antibiotics on the farm? Oh, we've got to protect the American farmer. That would be encroachment by the government. Why can't we test these animals on the farm to see if they're carrying dangerous pathogens? Oh, that would hurt the farmer. We've got to protect the guy in the overalls. But this is not a guy in overalls. This is a guy in a suit with a Maserati. You know, I mean, this is, these, are, these are big companies that we are protecting. And by protecting them, we're hurting ourselves. Some small independent farms like this one don't use antibiotics. Here, the hogs are raised more on open spaces, and piglets stay with their mothers for nearly twice as long as on the industrial farms. But most American pigs today are raised on large farms with 5,000 animals or more, often housed in tight quarters. Because the animals get sick under those conditions, cramming them together, stressing them out. Uh, they give them low doses of antibiotics all the time to try to prevent those infections. Well, wait, they create the situation that gives them stress. They give them antibiotics to deal with what they created, and then they get resistant? Is that the chain? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you nailed it, right? So this is the, it's, it's, it seems ridiculous on the surface, right? What we've been told is that some of these farms take these pigs and just put them tightly packed into an area, and the, the, they're, they're so tightly packed that they get stressed, and therefore they get preventative antibiotics. That's a pretty common misconception. So when you're talking about crowding, that would be an improper stocking density. So, yeah, but who can go find out? There's no oversight. These farms have somehow won the right to keep people off the farm to inspect Am I correct? Well, for one thing, we have no legislation around stocking density. So there is not a law that says... Exactly. But the incentive for farmers to do the right thing is, is really high. There's no way to find out. I don't understand how the farmers got this, way, got this right to make sure we can't find out for sure. Well, and we're trying to do everything we can to do the right thing so that um, the concerns that you're expressing here um, are unnecessary. In 2017, the Food and Drug Administration told farmers to stop using antibiotics in animals for growth purposes. But here's the loophole. They are permitted to use them for disease prevention, and there are no reporting requirements. Would you support a regulation that says farmers have to report how much they use antibiotics, and for what? I would support discussion around trying to figure out how to collect that data. It if is, they had to report it, right. they'd have to report yep. it. I work for farmers, and if it'd be a discussion among our leadership on whether we would support or not. Microbiologist Lance Price thinks the agriculture industry has too much power over regulation policies and chafes specifically at a new USDA rule the industry pushed for that went into effect last month. It loosened some significant regulations at hog slaughterhouses where inspectors are allowed. The USDA says it's modernizing the process, including requiring more microbial tests.
I don't see modernization. I see just straight-up deregulation in an industry that you want regulated. What couldn't slaughterhouses do that they can do now? Well, what the regulation does is allows companies to set their own line speeds. You're saying that the speed of these carcasses going through can right. be faster. So today it's 20 or almost 20 animals per minute. Now there's no limit. But people are supposed to be inspecting them on this line? Right. In the old system, qualified USDA inspectors examine each and every carcass looking for disease and contamination. Slaughterhouses can opt into the new system or keep the old one. The USDA declined our request for an on-camera interview, but it said in a statement that under the new system, government line inspectors are still expected to conduct an inspection of each carcass, as well as slow or stop the line if they see problems. But the number of government inspectors on the line is being reduced by 40%. To compensate for the loss, the USDA is adding high-level federal inspectors to enforce the plant's sanitation and safety procedures. Some of the job of examining the carcasses will be taken over by plant employees. Are they being trained? This is one of the things that I, I was shocked by when I saw the new regulation is that they, they're saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to throw this back to the company, but we're not going to mandate any training for these people. So we're just going to throw it to the company and we're going to have them figure it out. Shakira is one of the world's biggest music stars, a crossover phenomenon with hits in both Spanish and English. She's won three Grammys, 11 Latin Grammys, and amassed a $350 million fortune. Now at 42, she's about to hit another high note, performing at the halftime show at this year's Super Bowl with Jennifer Lopez. It's a remarkable journey for a woman who was cut from her elementary school choir in Colombia. Her classmates said she sounded like a goat. Shakira now lives in Spain. We went to see her there and found an artist bristling with restless energy and drive that sometimes torture her, but always propel her, lifting her to one of the biggest stages in the world, the Super Bowl in Miami. Two months before kickoff, Shakira lit up center court at the Davis Cup tennis tournament in Madrid with the kind of full-throated, hip-thrusting performance that has electrified audiences for more than two decades. This was her first live performance in more than a year, a warm-up for the Super Bowl, and a showcase for the distinctive music and eye-catching moves that have catapulted her to one name, international pop star status. Shakira fills huge stadiums around the world. Her devotees cry out, sometimes just plain cry, to hear hits like Hips Don't Lie. I've seen you running around, you go from guitar to drums. dancing and the singing, it just looks like you're having so much fun. Are you? Oh, yeah. I have a blast on stage. I feel that that's my turf. 
it's a comfortable place for me. You feel the music? I listen to music through my body. Even when I'm mixing songs in the recording studio, if I don't move, I know that there's something wrong. I say, do you see that moving? Do you see my hips moving? It's not working. <laughs> hips don't lie. <laughs> a lot of your dance moves are quite provocative. That's what my mom says. <laughs> That's what your mom says. Now you're says. sounding like her. <laughs> it just comes out like that. So you're just feeling it, and that's that's what happens. It's the way I move, baby. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to her moves and her music, Shakira leaves nothing to chance. The Davis Cup performance in November was just eight minutes. She spent a full month rehearsing. When we dropped in, we saw an artist in constant motion and total control. She fine-tunes the fine points of every performance. No detail is too small whether working on the choreography, critiquing the dancers, the hair police. The hair police. <laughs> Can we start over? or directing the timing of the show. From she movement to tutu, right? That's the one you stretch out? They used to call James Brown the hardest working man in show business. It seemed to us Shakira is vying for that title. In the studio, on the stage, Shakira strives for perfection. I can't really be hard on myself, wanting it to be 100% perfect, but I know perfection doesn't exist, but um, it's a lesson I haven't quite learned yet. <laughs> if it were up to me, I wouldn't be uh, celebrating any of my performances, really. None of them? None of them, no. There's always something that I wish would have been done differently and that I could have done better. Where she sees imperfection, her multitude of fans see incandescence. She has sold 80 million records worldwide. Five albums cracked the U.S. Billboard Top 10. She writes or co-writes nearly all her songs. What does creating the music uh, do for you? Sometimes... It saved me a visit to a shrink. <laughs> Literally. It's cathartic. Such a therapeutic, yeah, cathartic vehicle, you know, for me to express my thoughts, my angst. Sometimes I'm just restless, and I don't know what it is. And I think it's what I just need is a piece of paper and a pen or my computer and just start writing. And then being able to put music to those words is something really beautiful, I guess. Her distinctive sound is a blend of the music and colors of home, the coastal Colombian city of Barranquilla, a melting pot of cultures, indigenous, European, African, Middle Eastern. I have a little bit of everything in my blood. You mix all of those elements with your dance and the sounds of your music? You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an anthropologist. I guess that somehow I'm kind of uh, vicariously being one through my music. One of her biggest hits, Waka Waka, the anthem for the 2010 Soccer World Cup, had African roots. There are songs that make you feel like a dog biting your own tail. 
you never, <laughs> you never figure it out. And there are songs that are so easy that just come to you. Songs like Waka Waka, for example. That came to you easily. The music and the lyrics came to me at the same time. You're a good soldier, choosing your battle. You're a good soldier, choosing your battles. Pick yourself up, toss yourself up, back in the saddle. I'm like, I need a paper, I need a pen, a paper, a pen, someone. Run! <laughs> Waka Waka hit number one in more than 15 countries, racked up almost 2.4 billion views on YouTube, and it swept Gerard Piquet into her life. And it's Gerard Piquet! The Barcelona soccer star was one of several World Cup players who appeared in the music video. For me, it was, like, very shocking. I had to dance. <laughs> I'm not... Well, that's not dance, going like this. No, no, That's I, had not to, dancing. I had to do some, some, you, you know, some movement. Yeah, yeah. I had to do the waka waka. And for me, it was ridiculous. But his one-second cameo was enough to catch Shakira's eye. I wasn't a soccer fan, so I didn't know who he was. But when I when I saw the video, I was like, hmm, that one's kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone decided to introduce us. Yeah. The couple now has two boys live in Barcelona and have enough combined star power that Forbes magazine named them one of the most powerful couples on the planet. For all intents and purposes, you, you two are married, but you're not, We're not officially married. married. <laughs> to tell you the truth, marriage scares the out of me. I don't want him to see me as the wife. I'd rather him see me as his girlfriend. girlfriend. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. His lover, his girlfriend, like a little <laughs> forbidden fruit, you know. I want to keep him on his toes. I want him to think that anything's possible depending on behavior. <laughs> <laughs> anything's possible should be the mantra for Shakira Isabel Mubarak Ripoll. At 10, she entered a singing contest and won. At 13, she signed her first record deal. Five years later, she was one of the biggest rockeras, rock stars, in Latin America. But she craved a broader audience. So she learned English, studied the lyrics of Bob Dylan and the poetry of Walt Whitman, and at age 24 was blasting up the U.S. charts with a new look and a new song. What made you believe you could make it? in the United States. Destiny? I had no doubt in my mind. I had visions of what was going to happen to me I, 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 since a very early age. It was a steady rise until 2018 when she ran afoul of Spanish authorities over when she took up residence and how much tax she owes. She is paid about $16 million while she fights the assessment. It's a staggering sum that would have been unimaginable to a young Shakira. When she was seven, her father's jewelry business went bankrupt. The family went from middle class to poor overnight. What impact did that have on you? Oh, a tremendous impact. It was really important to me to vindicate my family's financial situation and social status um, and to a point that it became... Uh, an obsession to me, a healthy obsession, I, I would say, you know, to, to succeed in life, to bring my dad and my mom out of that precarious situation. I think that I would not be the same person 
if my dad hadn't had that financial setback. Her father scraped together the money to keep his bookish daughter in Catholic school. At 18, with money from her first hit album, she started a foundation to educate disadvantaged children. Why'd you do that? You were a kid yourself. I was a kid myself. I grew up witnessing that many kids my age, many kids just like me, instead of going to school, were sleeping barefoot in the park. Hola, ¿cómo está? She has built six schools and educated 23,000 children in Colombia. She's considered a global leader on education who lobbies presidents to invest in early childhood development. I've always been convinced that my purpose in life is not to shake it endlessly, you know. <laughs> I had to, there's got to be so much more to it, you know. My musical career has served as a vehicle to work uh, for children, which is the project of my life. Changing lives, creating music. She says she's as driven as ever. She's working on a new song. Got you moving. Got me moving. And your hips don't rise. (laughs) In true Shakira fashion, she thinks it can be better. There's something in the frequency of the bass that is bugging me a little bit. (laughs) I was just feeling it as I was listening. Pop star, mother, philanthropist. It's a lot to carry on her five foot three inch frame. On a walk in Barcelona, we got a taste of what it's like to be Shakira. Can I have a photo for yeah, you? Of course. And with the Super Bowl just weeks away, you'll see me in all my splendor. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> I'd be like stressed out. That she told us is part of her process, her drive for perfection which is taking her all the way to the Super Bowl. I know that was in my to-do list. So uh, February 3rd, I'm going to go check. You said you like your music to say something. What will be the message that you will send in your Super Bowl performance? I think the message is, is going to be, listen, I'm a woman. I'm a Latina. It wasn't easy for me to get to where I am. And being at the Super Bowl is the proof that everything is possible. That the dreams of a little girl from Barranquilla, Colombia, they were made of something, of what dreams are made of. And I'm going to be there giving it all. Next Sunday, on 60 Minutes, two performers, an athlete and an actor, each at the top of his game. Tennis's Rafael Nadal and Hollywood's Joaquin Phoenix. I'm Anderson Cooper. We'll be back next week with those stories and more on another edition of 60 Minutes.